This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. The 2018 report from the Global Sustainable Investment Alliance showed that total investment in areas to combat climate change and destruction of the environment was at around $30.7 trillion at the start of 2018. That represented a 34% increase since 2016, only a two-year window. And that expectation is that those numbers will continue to grow. But for that to grow, the expectations of different psychological mindsets and not so much different generations will have to be in unison, and that may not be the case moving forward. Kate Lamberton is a distinguished professor of marketing here at the Wharton School and recently took a longer look at the future of sustainable investing at a Bloomberg Global Responsible Investing Forum, and she joins us right now in studio. Good to see you. Thank you for coming in. Good to see you, too. Thanks for having me. What was the experience like for you? Because obviously we hear a lot of conversation about how sustainable investing is going to continue to grow and grow and grow, but when you go going to a conference like that, you you have to see a lot of different mindsets about where we're headed with this right now. Well, I would say at that event, the mindset was pretty uniformly positive. They're, they've a vested interest in believing that these yeah. things are going to continue to grow. And you have a lot of brilliant people who are spending a lot of energy trying to figure out how to define and constitute a truly sustainable fund. Um, I think what actually happens is there can be a big disconnect from what the typical individual on the street thinks and experiences. It happens in a lot of industries. You get really inside baseball. Like, (laughs) yes, in that room, these things are very well differentiated. There are clear reasons to buy them. Everybody knows it. But the job of communicating that to the external world is is not necessarily something that's done all that well. Yeah, I noticed in in the conversation that Uh, you were having during that conference that the messaging in many cases is almost exactly the same every fund that you go down the line. Yeah, it's it's quite funny, actually. If you go and look, you're going to see a little picture of a sprouting, like a bean sprout, shows up <laughs> everywhere. You're going to see somebody standing on a mountaintop looking over some great vista. You're going to see you know, very typical pictures that you would just get by Googling environmental friendliness. <laughs> and um, it's marketing 101, right? So how much then are those companies hurt by having the exact same messaging as everybody else in the process? Or is it because of the interest of those people in that topic that it really doesn't hurt the company? Yeah, so that's a good question. I think that there is something to building fluency. There's something to telling people, okay, this is the hallmark of a sustainably responsible fund. And people will see what they expect to see. They feel comfortable. It reduces risk. What it's generally going to do, though, is drive choice to the market leaders, right? So you go to the one that comes up first in the search engine that doesn't look different from all the others. Right. It's going to be the, the really motivated investor who's going to dig in and try to figure out what the differences are. And so to the extent that a company is putting a lot of effort into differentiation at a lower level, it might get lost. So then is there a, a significant difference between the mindset around sustainable investing as compared to traditional institutional investing? Yeah, I I think there still is. I think that um, the problem with any investment on the retail side for the consumer is that it tends to be a long-term decision. So it's abstract. It's way out there. Um, And when you layer on that the motivation is supposed to be not about alpha or immediate return, although it could be, but it's about making the world a better place in a very abstract sense, you have two layers of abstraction that can cause problems. Um, Another problem that I think these funds need to deal with and perhaps get in front of is 
skepticism among consumers. Uh, consumers are smart. <laughs> Investors are smart. Yeah. And this isn't a time when hypocrisy is going to be tolerated very well. Uh, so I think that because they are clearly trying to, quote, sell something new, and they're using a term like sustainability, which has had lots of holes poked in it, mm-hmm. they need to position these things in a way that they're really credible and they're really sound. I, I would think that in this day and age that we live in, also a, a key ingredient in investing in general mm-hmm. is the available data that's out there. And when you're talking about something in the area of sustainability, it's still a developing process right now. You have beliefs of what everything is going. You're starting to see some data come forward, but probably going back to that skepticism, there may not be enough data for some people to to make the buy-in. Yeah, there isn't a lot of historical data on these specific funds. What we do know is that some of the elements that are called out in the ESG funds, so um, that would be the ones that are focused on environmental, social, and governance factors, some of those factors are pretty robustly associated with financial performance, right? right? So it's it's kind of a no-brainer to say, hey, look, these are companies that are very careful about their corporate governance. They're probably less of a target for regulation. Um, they're managing potential conflict. That is likely to be associated with good performance, even though the ESG category as a whole may not have you know, a ton of historical data. Is there... Is there a difference in the mindset of investors when you think generationally on this on this topic? That's a great question. <laughs> I, uh, I a lot of the folks that talk about this uh, point to the statistic that sixty six percent of millennials say they're interested in uh, making sustainable investments. The truth is only about seventeen percent of them do. Um, And when you look at Gen X, you're about 50 percent say that they are interested and maybe about 7 percent of them do. Hmm. Those are mathematical differences. But what is somewhat surprising is that there's still a chunk of people who don't believe that they should be interested at all. And there's a real disconnect between what they say and what they do. So I think what we know is that the social norm around sustainable investing is stronger among millennials. Do we really know that the behavior is going to be more prevalent? No, we don't. Um, and some other research, when people think there's an age difference, there's actually a financial resource difference. It just happens to be correlated with age. Right. And that, and that's what I wondered, whether or not that part of the element why you see the that difference in people that say they're mm-hmm. interested and actually do is the financial element that they may have available to them at yeah. the particular moment, not necessarily just the want to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's very true. I mean, I've just collected some new data on things like interest in um, access-based consumption, which is supposed to be more environmentally friendly. And we find that if you account for both age and resource abundance, it's the resource abundance that explains the difference, not the age. In the speech that you gave, I, I took note, you talk about uh, the issue of scarcity mm-hmm. being an important topic here. Can you frame that for the listeners? Yeah. Yeah. When people have a scarcity mindset, they tend to be pretty risk averse. Um, so if I feel like I'm down to my last dollar, I'm going to be really careful what I do with it. Um, and that that can cut across all generations, right? Yeah. We experience scarcity at different levels. Also, objective and subjective scarcity are different. You have millionaires who feel like they're broke, and you have people who make <laughs> you know sixty thousand dollars a year who feel like they're doing all right. So that's a psychological variable that can change people's decision making that you is actually kind of hard to estimate based on something like a demographic factor. And I would imagine it's a it's an element that 
all of these different companies have to focus on when they're thinking about trying to attract a person into a particular fund. Yeah, absolutely. In a lot of these cases, um, these some of the newer funds are also not necessarily yet tied into things like a retirement plan. So they're asking yeah. people to invest money aside from whatever they're putting in their retirement, which is kind of their liquid cash. That's a big ask for people who are facing what they know is a volatile market and are unsure of their resources. Well, flow. and I think there's also the element uh, that that even though we're a decade out from the recession, there are there are still people out there that are impacted negatively by what occurred a decade ago, and that that extra cash that you talk about in some cases is not as available oh, as course. it would be for for other people. Absolutely, I think the recession is going. I mean, has very long echoes. <laughs> I mean, that that hasn't stopped resounding for people, and it's always possible it's going to happen again. We're joined by Kate Lamberton, uh, who is a distinguished professor of marketing here at the Wharton School. We're talking about sustainable investing and the marketing surrounding it. Uh, she was part of a conference involving uh, Bloomberg, a global responsible investing forum, uh, just a little while ago. So we're talking. To her about what she saw. Is it the expectation then, though, because the issues surrounding sustainability are so front and center and, and they are publicized on a, on a daily basis, that the growth of sustainable investing, it, it would seem to be limitless because of how important the topics are right now? I think that there's enormous potential. There's no question about that. A couple things that happen when things are publicized all the time, though. One thing is that we get used to hearing about it, and we get used to ignoring it. So yeah. we have to continue. Here it, com here it comes again. Yeah, right, exactly. Oh, that thing again. Oh, we haven't fixed it yet. Great. Yeah. Um, so we have to we have to be careful about the way we communicate about these things in such a way that they don't just start becoming the background of our lives. Um, another thing that can happen is people develop learned helplessness, right? So, Which is what? Basically, you've tried stuff and it hasn't made any difference, right? right. So 10 years ago, you told me to replace all the light bulbs in my house. And that was going to save the planet. So I, I right. replaced all the light bulbs. And you know what? Things aren't really getting better. Um, that said, one of the things that you mentioned is that these are tied sometimes to very sacred values. And those can be really motivating to people. Is it then also part of a policy issue? moving forward because it's one thing for individuals to make some of these changes it's another thing for a company to start to yes. make these changes i think it's a whole different kettle of fish if it is a government that is that <laughs> is making these changes absolutely it's, i think you know we have some big players in the market right now with huge players right they make changes changes happen i mean probably 15 years ago i was at a conference at scripps oceanar Oceanographic Institute, um, where people asked a climate scientist, you know, what do we as individuals need to do here to change things? And his answer was vote. You know, his yeah. answer wasn't change your light bulbs as an individual. Yeah. It was get the right people in power who will make a difference. Um, and I think that, you know, we at this point, it doesn't necessarily have to be government. It can be some of these enormous companies that can make a big change, too. But then the, going back to something you said a mm -hmm. second ago, it, it's it's one thing for the policymakers to make the change. But there's an element of risk at play here that yeah. that a lot of people, as you said before, are risk averse. For the, you know, for the most part. Yeah, it's sort of interesting because on one hand, this feels risky, but on the other hand, it may be the safest bet we have. Because one thing we know is that climate change is happening. Right. It's, it's not really a question. You can have different philosophies about where or why, but it is in fact happening. And so a business that is 
trying to address climate change is not such a risky investment. It's kind of a sure thing. It's like a company that addresses weather. Like, <laughs> there will be weather, and we're going to have to respond to it. Uh, so how much risk is there really? And some of these funds, you know, there's also there, there are big differences between what what the, quote, sustainable funds are doing. Some of them are just looking for good governments, governance strategies. And again, those are likely to be tied to financial outcomes. Then you have things like sustainable investment funds, which are just a filter. They're just picking and choosing mm-hmm. which which companies are meeting a set of guidelines. And then you have impact funds, which are different again. Impact funds are about creating a positive change, so specifically investing in companies you think are doing good things. People can calibrate across those, right, in ways that manage their risk. Probably the ESGs are going to feel, you know, feel safer than the social impact funds. We're joined by Kate Lamberton here in studio, uh, professor of marketing here at the Wharton School, talking about sustainable investing. It's interesting. We, we talked with an executive of JetBlue last week who her job is ESG. Mm-hmm. And you think about all the different companies and, and probably we have seen it's such a market rise in not only companies realizing that issues around environmental are important, but the hiring of positions mm. for the expressed goal of dealing with these issues. And you yeah. think about an airline, yeah. they're, they're as much as anybody you know, need to address some of the issues that, that they have surrounding Surrounding environment. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. There's a whole new enormous job classification of in finance of people whose entire job is just ESG analysis. Yeah. Right. So it's created a lot of new interesting jobs. I think the trick is going to be making sure this is real, right? Making sure that the people who are doing these jobs are are speaking the same language. So, so then outside of, of voting, as you just <laughs> said a moment ago, how do you make it more? real for people? I think that there are some really great conversations going on um, among players in the industry that have to do with agreeing on terminology, on setting benchmarks, on providing data, on being transparent. I think that the pressure to be genuine is going to come in large part from consumers. I think that, um, I mean, if you saw Ricky Gervais recently call out a bunch of big companies about Mm -hmm. what they were doing or not doing, that kind of pressure will resonate. It is disturbing (laughs) to corporate leaders if somebody calls them out on something that looks looks fake. Yes, I'm sure there were a few uh, hot seats at Apple the the day (laughs) after the Golden Globe Awards. So you you can have your 10,000 people working on ESG, but if nobody can see the impact, if they don't see that you're changing something, and even if they don't see that you're doing something costly to make this better, it's going to be hard to believe. But I would think then then that also puts a little more emphasis on the message being delivered by mm-hmm. the consumer mm-hmm. towards that company that they may be investing in already mm-hmm. to say, okay, listen, we heard Ricky Gervais <laughs> lay you out on the Golden yeah. Globes for the type of, of workers that you have in, in other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do for our company to make it better? Yeah. It's a big question. And, you know, to the extent that that consumers are actually willing to change their behavior to mm-hmm. communicate that, then something can happen. It, I think that there is a there's there's a lot of interest, as we said before, in these kinds of funds and in making sure they're real. But we need bo- the communication to go both ways. How successful are do you think in general these funds right now and with the messaging that they are delivering to the to the investor? I think that there's a lot of opportunity to do better. And I think the funds that are going to succeed are going to be the ones that figure out a better language for what they're doing and learn how to communicate the changes that 
investing in their fund will make in the world as opposed to others. Um, and honestly, they've got to get around some of this terminology that's just empty for people. People, you know, these things all sound the same to the end consumer. The company that figures out how to do that can own this space, but the, nobody's doing it yet. Some of the best examples of that would be what do you think? Um, in this space, it's actually tough to find them because well, they all sound about the same. Right. Um, Betterment has done some really interesting things about retirement in general. Yeah. I think they've done a really nice job of communicating directly to their target consumer. I've talked with a few startups that are trying to do some really interesting things related to personalization that could make the outcomes much more concrete. Yeah. I think there's some hope there. Would it be better or worse then to have some of this tied to retirement accounts, do you think? Oh, I think it's better. I mean, I think that that in that sense, it makes it an easy choice for people. And some of the large retirement account or I'm sorry, the large retirement um, investment companies have a lot of credibility and and tying into that credibility and backing it up with some additional additional evidence of what these things are doing be a huge help. And, and I would imagine that even now and again, kind of playing off of what we saw with mm -hmm. the recession 10 years ago and so many people losing a lot of their retirement mm -hmm. savings. Mm -hmm. That here's an opportunity for, a, I would imagine, a relatively brand new arena to step in and be able to provide great opportunity for people moving mm -hmm. forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think people want something new. They want something new in this space. Um, and again, if they can communicate that this is not this is not the riskiest thing. A few years ago, a really great paper came out uh, that was about the sustainability liability. And the argument was that when things are sustainable, they're seen as weaker. And they were looking at things like shampoos and detergents. Right? Right. That paper came out a few years ago. Um, I would be very surprised that that same effect holds. I think that that sense has weakened. I think that people are starting to see that sustainability is more of a sure thing than we thought, that the needs that are raised by increasing information transparency and climate change are, are good business opportunities. I, I think you touch on a, an important point there because I think in general our culture is seen yep. a, as a user, as a consumer mm -hmm. uh, uh, of as much as we possibly can, <laughs> yet maybe because of some economic factors we are now more thinking twice about how much we use on X product or how much yeah. we use on Y product and whether or not that mindset is that mindset shift is occurring. And there are some interesting macro level things that can contribute to more sustainable behaviors. For example, um, if you don't have the money to buy a large living space, you're going to accumulate uh, accumulate less stuff which may mean you're less likely to, for example, buy more fast fashion that's just going to be turned over. You don't have closet space for yeah. it. So you have a macroeconomic change that drives people toward a behavioral change that actually can be good for the environment. And I think that same kind of translation may happen in their retirement investment space. People are just thinking about it differently, and it's going to change their choices. Are there sectors that you believe can can potentially have the greatest impact in, in continuing to, to, to mind that change? I mean, I know there have been anecdotal uh, evidence uh, of companies in the retail sector and, uh, you know, mm -hmm. company like Adidas with some of the products that they have made that I've, I've talked about on this show in, in mm -hmm. the past, the changes that they want to make are changes that will resonate with a lot of people out there. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, the, the biggest sectors in the, the ESG sustainable investment area are going to be things like climate change. Um, Yes, it, if it keeps coming up in a way that people don't feel helpless about it, it's it's a huge opportunity to give people exactly what they want, um, and for them to feel like they're doing 
doing good by doing well. Um, but you also have areas like um, like tobacco, <laughs> uh, where people want some kind of answer right now. They want to feel like they're doing something. And what we thought was a solution turns out to not be a good solution. So you have an unmet need. How much of this, and I guess to a degree we talk about this on the U.S. perspective, mm-hmm. but I think you also have to talk about it on the global mm-hmm. perspective as well. In a lot of these areas, how some of these changes can occur globally so you can have the impact that that's needed. Yeah, a lot of the uh, the, the ESG funds um, are getting into things like conflict risk, which is obviously you know not necessarily necessarily in the in the United States, not what they're focusing on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're all we're all very interconnected. So if you're not paying attention to what you're investing in in sub-Saharan Africa, <laughs> yeah. and the geopolitical conditions that are surrounding it, likely you might be introducing something you don't intend to. But something like conflict risk, I would never think would be would be part of this discussion yet when. When you think about some of the other areas around the world, it's it's as important as any topic in, in some areas. It's and it's it's again not only a chance to do something potentially positive, it's a practically really important factor for businesses to consider, right? War breaks out, yeah. all the good things you did to your supply chain get a lot more complicated. Yeah. So it's practically very important and it really does reduce risk. And the future companies that would think about going to country Y, mm-hmm. but would be yes. dissuaded by having a conflict in that country, why would you want to put a new firm in a particular country yeah. if your supply chain or your buildings are going to be destroyed <laughs> within six months? Yep. It's pretty difficult to to make. Yeah. Great seeing you again. Thank nice you for coming you in. Thank Thanks. you. Kate Lamberton from here at the Wharton School. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.